Well, I should begin by thanking you for your company and your perseverance over the last five weeks. Um, and uh, 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 begin by, a, I suppose, a brief resume of the previous lectures. So we've seen in the past few weeks how the English people in the age of Henry VIII thought about war, prepared for war, served in war, lost or gained from war, and killed or died in war. But how did all these activities shape their identity as the English people and their relationship with Henry and his government? Historians and historical sociologists examining early modern Europe have long asked themselves, as indeed the examiners for the preliminary examination in history put it in 2013, <laughs> did war and the organization of military force strengthen or weaken the powers of rulers? How important in the development of the powers of the modern state was the need for fiscal and military institutions to defend subject populations and compete with other states compared with, for example, the extractive ambitions of the dominant classes, the demand from subjects for justice, or the princely duty to impose the godly discipline of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. A generation of debates suggests that while war often made a significant contribution to political development elsewhere, its effects on Tudor England were underwhelming. Henry drove up state revenue per head of population, but it soon fell back again. And England emerged from the 16th century with no regular system of direct taxation or of domestic indirect taxation. Even when parliamentary subsidies were voted, they declined into farcical underassessment. There was more or less no standing army outside Ireland, and even the substantial standing navy readily fell prey to corruption and decay. By the standards of ascending Brandenburg Prussia, or Grand Siècle France, or even the market-driven, stakeholder-negotiated Dutch Republic, the state formation induced by Tudor England's wars was unimpressive. And it would take the civil wars and those of William III and Marlborough to make England and then Britain a fiscal military state. Yet, Henry's people campaigned in force, mustered regularly, and paid plenty of taxes. And as we've seen in previous weeks, this shaped the powers and responsibilities of boroughs, parishes, and landed elites, and their lines of communication with the crown. It steered government intervention in the economy and invited entrepreneurial responses. It sent individuals to death or adventure. But how did it respond to and mould attitudes to the king and the nation? In his military treatise, Thomas Audley suggested kings or their captains facing battle should inspire their troops with a model speech, similar to, but more elaborate than, those recommended in earlier works. This speech began with the king's right, honour and wealth, and promised his men reward if they did well, but it continued in much wider vein. They were to consider your worship and perpetual fame to your country, which hath so many years continued in honour, without slander of cowardice, by the valiant act done by the hands of your noble progenitors, which hath had to do with those nations with whom, by the grace of God, you shall have to do with all this day. Reward we can perhaps take for granted. Certainly those who thought that they'd served well petitioned for grants or pardons throughout the period, and national glory will come to later. But the king's rights loomed large in contemporary explanations of war. The phrase, the king's wars, was used in every imaginable context, in wills, in leases, in lawsuits, in financial accounts. 
conventional expositions of just war theory place great stress on the need for just war to be authorised by legitimate political authority and for that authority to be acting on just cause. The English king's title to lands in France, unjustly detained, indeed to the crown of France, served as such a cause. The king's very right and true title to Normandy and the French crown, from which he had been put out wrongfully, loomed large for William Worcester in the 1470s, looking back to his late master, Sir John Fastolf, and to Fastolf's late master, John, Duke of Bedford, regent of Lancastrian France, until his death in 1435. But interest in the Crown's claims persisted much longer. In 1491, Shrewsbury Borough Council wrote of Henry VII's great voyage into France to challenge his right and to obtain his inheritance there. In 1512, Gascon noblemen swore loyalty to Henry VIII as King of France, and in 1523, Suffolk's army on the Somme collected similar oaths. As late as 1563, the occupation of Le Havre aimed to defeat the Frenchman's intentions to detain Calais and the territories from the crown contrary to all right. How seriously did subjects take these claims? J.S. Brewer presumably intended no irony in his comment of 1867 that 16th century Englishmen believed as fully in the right and title of their kings to France as we believe in our title to India or Ireland. But he seems to have been right. In May 1553 at Norwich, Thomas Aldersey told a Frenchman who said he had seen the King of France 20 times at Paris, fellow, talk not of such things, for thou speakest, thou wottest not what, for the King our master is King of France. Perhaps he was picking a fight, but others agreed early in Henry's reign, an anonymous customs official, probably from Ipswich, composed a manuscript defense of the king's title to the French throne, countering the arguments of printed French treatises. And in 1549, John Cook, secretary to the English merchant adventurers at Antwerp, penned an answer to a French text in which two heralds debated the respective merits of England and France, again, asserting the English claim. Even Arthur Golding, the English translator of Caesar's Gallic War explained in 1565 that since Edward III's time, our English nation had sore afflicted the French in contention for the substance of the crown and possession of the whole realm, descended to our kings by right of inheritance, the right remaining still to the crown of England. Claims to English preeminence over Scotland seem to have had narrower purchase, though in the heady reign of Edward VI, they merged with visions of British Protestant unity to inspire some. One astrological writer anticipated the ambitions of James VI and I by calling Edward the most noble emperor of Great Britain. The second great motivation for just war was the defense of one's country. Already in William Worcester's generation, Roman notions of devotion to res publica made commonplace the argument that, like as a man receiveth his living in a region or in a country, so is he of natural reason bound to defend it. Kings duly stressed the defensive purposes of their wars, Henry VII resisting the hurt and annoyance plotted by the French against his realm and subjects, and the great cruelty of the King of Scots so that his people might live in rest and peace for many years to come. In 1513, warnings of the manifest danger 
opposed to the realm by French and Scots who planned to burn, slay, rob, and destroy in various quarters were taken on board by one reader who underlined the manifest danger in his copy of the printed statutes of war. In 1539, Sir Richard Morrison explained that Henry was preparing against enemies who seek our blood, covet our destruction. The diplomatic isolation brought on by the break with Rome made such arguments more compelling. And the great invasion scare of 1545, even more so, perhaps explaining why the enormously heavy taxes of 1545 to six were paid with scarcely a grumble. Scottish raids made the defensive argument yet more immediate in the north than in the south. York was told repeatedly that the king fought not just for his own rights and honor, but for the defense of this his realm, for its surety, safety, and honor, what was summed up by the 1540s as the commonwealth of our realm and subjects. Henry's martial activity was presented as demonstrating both his wisdom and his care. Morrison stressed the king's determination to diligently watch that we may safely sleep, fortifying the ruinous places of the sea coasts by which our enemies might suddenly invade us, such that soon England will then be much like a castle than a realm. The message ran through government correspondence. The king ordered defensive preparations like a most noble, prudent, and courageous prince, minding the defense and preservation of all his loving subjects. The Subsidy Act of 1545 whacked especially lyrical. Despite enemy assaults, we, the people of this his realm, have, for the most part of us, lived under his majesty's sure protection, and do yet so live, out of all fear and danger, as if there were no war at all, even as the small fishes of the sea, in the most tempestuous and stormy weather, do lie quietly under the rock or bank side. The metaphor continues, but I'll spare you. <laughs> Subjects must surely respond in grateful cooperation, paying their taxes to support the king's charges for the defense and preservation of them, their wives and children, charges for which he was spending his treasure selling his lands and daily enduring manifold pains and labor of body and travel and care of mind. Elizabeth's tone was less grandiose, but she too had her parliamentary spokesman emphasize that rather than spend on superfluous and sumptuous buildings of delight, she was investing in necessary defense of her people, in the commonwealth and surety of the realm, in the navy, for example, one of the chiefest defense for the preservation of us and our realm against the malice of any foreign potentate. A third justification for legitimate violence was the defense of the ruler's God-given authority against rebels. This was sometimes strengthened by emphasizing the rebels' collaboration with the realm's ancient enemies in foreign parts, but commanders found it rickety. In 1525, the men recruited to confront the amicable Grant rebels were unwilling to fight against their kindred and companions, their neighbors. In 1549, it was thought that Somerset and Dorset men, despite exhortation to be as ready to fight against those rank rebels and papists of Devon as becometh good subjects, would most faintly fight against the Devonshire men, their neighbors. Troops from more distant shires, Welshmen in the Southwest, Midlanders in East Anglia, seem, together with foreign mercenaries, to have borne the brunt of the fighting in 1549, just as southerners were mobilized against the north in 1536 and 1569. 
In Ireland, the sense of fighting against rebels was more ingrained, and the Kildare Rebellion and subsequent proclamation of Henry's kingship strengthened it further. Meanwhile, a fourth justification, the defense of true religion, was mutating. In the late 15th century, Englishmen in ones and twos still took the cross to fight the infidel, while the English branch of the Knights Hospitallers survived in some vigor to its dissolution in 1540 and revival under Mary. But already for Morrison in the 1530s, fighting in defense of Henry's Reformation made Englishmen's enemies not so much ours as God's enemies. In 1549, young King Edward VI wrote in his homework that it was glorious to fight for true religion, as often happens in contemporary wars. By the 1560s, some felt sure that when defending Elizabethan England, they were defending the gospel, and that Elizabethan England should do more to defend the gospel elsewhere. In his sermon at the opening of Parliament in 1563, Alexander Noel, Dean of St Paul's, explained that Elizabeth's most holy wars in Scotland and France had been made without ambition, not only for the surety of this our realm, but also for conscience sake, to defend those whom her enemies of their devilish pretensed purpose planned to destroy. By the end of her reign, the duty to crush rebels in Ireland and the duty to resist popery in brotherhood with the Huguenots and the Dutch came together under the banner of national defence to ward off successive armadas and subdue Irish lords in league with Spain. A different but persuasive justification for international war was as an antidote to civil war. In preparation for the French campaign of 1475, Edward IV argued that a notable and a mighty war outwards was the best remedy for the long-continued troubles and divisions of this, our realm of England. The Tudors insisted that they had rescued the country from disputed succession and dire civil conflict, that rebellion might revive such division, and that in contrast, international war could unify the realm. A statute of 1512 announced Henry's intention to send over the sea a great army trusting thereby not only to preserve this his realm in his ancient fame and honour, but also to set in perfect peace and tranquillity his subjects of the same. In 1536, as rebellion spread across the north, Sir Richard Morrison asked, is there any in England that hath not heard of Palm Sunday Field, Blackheath Field, and many other? These two fields, how many widows made they? How many fatherless children? What blood they cost us? Palm Sunday Field, Towton, bloodiest battle of the Wars of the Roses, loomed large in historical memory. Chronicles reckoned there were 20,000 or more slain, and John Leland noted that it took five pits, still visible 70 years later, to bury the dead. As England faced invasion in 1539, Morrison structured much of his exhortation to stir all Englishmen to the defense of their country around the antithesis between the rebellions of 1536 to 7, which it seemed would have done exceeding much hurt in England, and the glorious external wars of Edward III, Henry V, and Henry VIII. The printed historical literature of the age enshrined the same contrast. The simplest, smallest, and most numerous historical works were the short chronicle, chronicle of years, and breviate chronicle texts printed at London and Canterbury in some 19 editions between 1540 and 1561. 
For the Breviate Chronicle, St Albans, Northampton, Wakefield, Towton, Edgecote, Barnet and Tewkesbury were each a cruel battle or a cruel fight, five of them killing 10,000 men or more, 36,700 at Towton and all Englishmen. In contrast, Edward III and the Lancastrian captains did noble prowess in feats of arms, noble feats and valiant acts, and Agincourt occupied almost a page by itself. Henry's wars loomed large, early expeditions and the campaigns of the 1520s framing fulsome rehearsal of the triumphs of 1513, as Henry discomfited the power of France and took Terouan and Tournay, while 100,000 Scots were defeated and their king slain at Flodden. And of the 1540s, Edinburgh destroyed and Boulogne so victoriously conquered that it would have comforted all true Englishmen's hearts to have heard and seen the victory and conquest. In the Breviate Chronicle of 1552, Henry's last French war occupied as much space as the reigns of Edward V, Richard III, and Henry VII put together. Longer texts of the 1540s, 50s, and 60s, Fabian's, Cooper's, and Grafton's chronicles told the same story of terrible and cruel civil wars and great victories over France. And it was not just the kings who were heroes. Pinky was won by the wisdom, policy, and valour of the English captains and the good stomach of our soldiers. Even the siege of Le Havre showed the valiant hearts and stout courages of all our countrymen who fought on, although the streets lay full of the stinking corpses not able to be buried for the multitude of them that died from the dreadful plague. There was more to read on England's glorious martial past and present. Caxton urged reflection on the deeds not only of Arthur's knights, but of Richard the Lionheart, Edward I, Edward III, and Henry V, and their companions. To find out about Sir Robert Knowles, Sir John Chandos, and the rest, he urged Reed Froissart. Leland, Cook, the Breviate Chronicle, and Morrison all referenced Froissart, as did one reader annotating Cooper's Chronicle. Access was facilitated by Lord Berner's massive translation of Froissart, published at the King's Command in 1523 to 25 and reprinted in the 1540s and 1560s. A long poem <coughs> about the Agincourt campaign was printed in 1536. There were new English and Latin lives of Henry V, and young Elizabethans collected brief Latin verses on his victories. The contemporary work that did most to place Henry VIII's wars in this framework was Hall's Chronicle, in which nearly half the history of England since 1399 was taken up by Henry's triumphant reign. It was a large book, but marketable, with three editions between 1548 and 1560. In 1550, the Countess of Rutland bought a copy. In 1559, the Earl of Bath's London agent was trying to get him one, along with a picture of the new queen, and other chronicles in print and manuscript soon began to refer to it. The final piece in the jigsaw was placed by the news publications we considered in our first lecture. Hall's treatment of Henry's last war against Scotland incorporated the text of the King's Declaration of War. While short printed chronicles referred for details of Pinky to Patton's expedition into Scotland. It's hard to know how readers responded to this material, but some early readers did mark or annotate passages on Anglo-Scottish or Anglo-French relations in printed English or Latin chronicles. Reaching from Edward I 
and Edward III through Agincourt to Terouanne, Tournai, Flodden, Boulogne, and Pinky. At least one had an unhealthy taste for totting up the numbers of Scots killed in battles. <laughs> Some showed their thoughtful engagement by writing different names for battles in the margin, Scottish Field for Flodden, or commenting on strategy, the cause why France was lost, or tactics. Next to the archers at Agincourt, one wrote, archers of those days, adding by their use of stakes, stratagema sagittariorum, strategy of the archers. Thomas Audley made similar historical reflections. Proposing that one should put well-armoured pikemen in the front rank, he added, which in old times was called men-at-arms on foot, for that they were better armed and also were men of more force and experience than the other were. The printed chronicles mostly derived from a tradition of manuscript chronicle writing which persisted in its own right. Loquacious memoirists like Charles Risley, Henry Machin and the Greyfriars Chronicler retailed military news as it came into London. Much briefer chronicles kept at Ashridge, Canterbury, London, Newcastle and Tenterden all noticed the capture of Boulogne and sometimes other events, while those writing at Calais, Plymouth and Butley Priory picked out local wartime news. Genealogical compilers mentioned Henry's victories of 1513, and those adding stanzas on his reign to historical poems stressed his martial acts as a conqueror, a prince invictissimus. The landscape, too, could be read as a historical catechism. Memorial chapels marked the site of internecine slaughter outside Shrewsbury on what locals still called the heath called the battlefield, at Saxton near Towton, at Barnet, at Tewkesbury, where Edward, Prince of Wales, was venerated, at Dadlington for the dead of Bosworth. Where there were no chapels, there were crosses, at Hedgley Moor, at Northampton, at Wakefield, where people still talked in Leland's time about the sad death of the young Earl of Rutland. In his travels, Leland heard tell of many ancestors struck down or houses defaced in the late Civil War. The blessings of our long peace and quietness within the realm, conversely, were evident in the building of fine houses rather than castles, or so Thomas Smith argued in 1549. Sites and monuments spoke equally of the successes of foreign war. Leland noted churches and castles built by the heroes of the Hundred Years' War, Trinity College Pontefract and Bunbury College Cheshire by Sir Robert Knowles and Sir Hugh Calverley, companions and great men of war, Amptill Castle, Beaverston Castle, Sturton Castle and Sudley Castle, all by spoils gotten in France, Hampton Court, Herefordshire, and parts of Farley Hungerford Castle out of the profits of French prisoners. Leland did note those killed or ransomed in France, ports burned in French raids, but his general impression was positive. Battles against the Scots could be pinpointed in the northern landscape, but were most visible at Durham, where the banner of David II, captured at Neville's Cross, hung in the Minster. A wooden cross marked the site of the victory, and an explanatory table gave details of the battle and its heroes. After Flodden, Heaton Castle remained visibly beaten by the Scots, but the captured standards joined the trophies at Durham. As he toured the coasts, finally, Leland saw king and subjects working together in his own time to defend the realm. Blockhouses and bulwarks made by towns, by gentlemen, by the country, and castles late begun by the king. 
Henry's subjects knew how to fit his campaigns into these histories. Nicholas West, Dean of Windsor, wished in a letter of 1513 that the king might return from campaign with as great honour as ever had any of his predecessors in France. In the wake of 1513, petitioners referred to Henry's noble and victorious wars or requested his signature with his most victorious hand. From the late 1530s, his men in Ireland fell over each other to wish him much victory, continual victory over your enemies, the full establishment of your most glorious commenced victories. But it was above all the capture of Boulogne that Victorious made the epithet Henry wanted to hear. Henry Parker, Lord Morley, duly dedicated the life of Theseus he gave the king at New Year 1545 to his most victorious monarch. Ordinary subjects joined in. In November 1544, Edmund Keane of Dean, Hampshire, dated his will in the most noble and victorious reign of Henry VIII. And it didn't stop with Henry. Edward's counsellors had him write to York in 1548 that he needed troops to fight the Scots to preserve the gains won by our victories upon them in these our tender years. In November 1557, perhaps flushed with news of Saint-Quentin, John Green of Mask, Yorkshire, dated his will in the most victorious reigns of Philip and Mary. It was possible to ponder history more analytically. Some still found success comparing the submission of the Irish to Henry to that achieved at greater cost by Richard II. Others raised questions. Would Henry have to begin a new conquest of Ireland like Henry II? Put in as much effort there as Edward I had to subdue Wales. Fight off Scottish intervention in Ulster as in the days of Edward Bruce. Thomas Barnaby, worried in 1552 that we should not find the realm of France after that sort that we did for six score years agone when we did conquer it. For then the Duke of Normandy and the Duke of Brittany and the Duke of Burgundy were all three against the French king and now it is knit all to one realm. The Marquis of Winchester challenged Exeter Corporation as Calais tottered in 1558 with the idea that the king, queen and realm had never such an injury offered unto them since Edward III's time. For some, the trophies of past triumph and stories of civil strife were very personal. Sir David Owen, who lived until 1535, had tapestries showing Henry V, Henry VI, the Dukes of Clarence, Bedford and Gloucester, and divers other great men. He was the bastard son of Owen Tudor, who had fought for Henry V, married his widow, and been executed after Mortimer's cross. Oral memory, too, keyed battles into personal histories. In Yorkshire, Lancashire and Gloucestershire, deponents in court cases used Flodden as a point of reference in Elizabeth's reign and beyond. The historic weight of Flodden was evident in anticipation from the wills made by those going to do battle against the King of Scotland for the defence of the realm of England, and in retrospect from the epitaph of Sir Marmaduke Constable, one of its three verses entirely devoted to the battle. In the marches, Bloor Heath had something of the same significance. And in 1543, the vicar of Much Wenlock buried John Trussingham, an aged lame man from the local almshouse who claimed to have been there. In a different way, the alliterative qualities of the wars of Turwen and Tournay bore them forward into Elizabethan drama and historical writing. Some events stuck because of their horror. 
In a court case of 1551, Christopher Laneham record how he had been present at the burning of the Carrick of France and the Regent of England. Others were of obvious significance. The great storm that prevented the relief of Calais became proverbial as the wind that blew away Calais. Ballads may have helped enshrine certain encounters in popular memory. Bosworth and Flodden, above all, Pinky and the Howard's chase after Andrew Barton, the loss of Calais, and English efforts against the cruel tyranny of the Guise. Written records tied the King's Wars into institutional histories. The London livery companies recorded in their accounts every time they went out to welcome Edward IV or Henry VII back from battle. Merton College noted Henry VII's campaigns, domestic and international, into the college register. And York put a substantial account of Flodden into the civic records. At Lincoln's Inn, they registered Solway Moss, won by the policy of the Englishman, being not the tenth part in number to the Scots, and the capture of Boulogne, which was never before gotten by any king of England. The scribe got quite carried away, noting that there might be much more lords and worthier things herein spoken of the king's grace than my wit or my pen can set forth. As I there heard say, he said himself he would never depart thence till the town were gotten. Dating formulae responded to triumph or humiliation. At Heathfield in Somerset in 1513, Richard Hadley started his new account book after the winning of Terroin and Tournay in Picardy. At Worcester, Roger Ward, surveyor of the suppressed priories purchased for the city, dated his accounts after the getting of Boulogne the first year. At Bridgewater, a military assessment was recorded dourly in February 1558, in which year Calais by the French was taken. It was in the King's interest to channel this sense of historic English war-making into the will to fight specific enemies. This might be done by blurring the lines, as William Worcester did, between the great deeds of great kings and those of the English nation, done to the great renommee and worship of this realm. He pointed out that the famous king and mighty prince, King Edward III, and the prince of blessed memory, King Harry V, achieved what they did only by the valiantness of Englishmen. Another technique was to tell the English that foreigners thought they had declined from their ancestral valour. Morrison claimed to have heard a foreign gentleman remark that the activity of Englishmen hath been great, if histories be true, but it is nothing so now. They have been of good hearts, courageous, bold, valiant in martial feats, but those Englishmen are dead. Foreigners from Vilvolt von Schaumburg in 1492 to the Duke of Arscott in 1543 did indeed evaluate the English soldiers they met on campaign in the light of those they had read about in Chronicles. The decline of archery may have been a problem here. At least until the 1550s, foreigners whether planning crusading campaigns or merely reporting on their visits to England, associated English military prowess inextricably with the bow, and its decline may have left Englishmen wondering where their talents lay. A third technique was to speak regularly of the kings and the realm's ancient enemies. Government correspondents referred to the Scots from Edward IV's time to Mary's as the king's ancient enemies, his ancient adversaries, or, remembering claims to English overlordship, his enemies and rebels, though with the more complex relationships of Elizabeth's reign, language was moderated. 
The French king was the king's ancient enemy. The French, with their perverse and most cruel purpose, the ancient enemies of the realm. The repetition of these formulae by local authorities, urban and noble, and even more so by individuals or their clerks in wills or lawsuits, suggests that these ideas were absorbed. So do the comments of foreign observers. A Spanish merchant reported that the best word an Englishman can find to say of a Frenchman is French dog. <laughs> the Venetian diplomat Giovanni Michiel, more analytical, spoke of Anglo-Scottish relations in terms of the hatred which neighbouring nations generally entertain one towards another, which is increased, in this instance, by constant wars, old quarrels and disputes about confines. War became a credibly national effort because of the way armies were composed. In Henry's wars, the boys from the Mersey and the Thames and the Tyne came together. At Flodden, where Howard followers from East Anglia and Sussex joined the levies of Lancashire, Cheshire and Yorkshire to back up the borderers. At Terouanne and Tournai, where retinues from all over southern and midland England were forced by contingents from Cumberland, Northumberland, Yorkshire and Cheshire and large companies from North and South Wales. The first response to invasion, it's true, was to call upon the North to resist the Scots and the South to resist the French, but for larger operations, more complex arrangements came into place. The homes of the retinue leaders in the vanguard of the army sent against Scotland in 1497 show the wide distribution one would expect from uh, its dependence on the king's household men, spread as they were across the realm, as a royal affinity to secure political control. If the whole of Henry's army had been assembled, then East Anglia would no doubt have been pulled in by the Earls of Oxford and Surrey, Devon and Cornwall by Lord Willoughby de Brooke, and so on. The homes of those levied to fight as soldiers in France in 1557 again suggest a national effort, with large contingents from Yorkshire and Wales, as well as southern England. Some surprising omissions, Essex, Cornwall, disappear when we add in those levied as pioneers or miners. And when we compare these figures, as best we can, with the manpower available, as indicated by musters, it appears that some areas, Norfolk for example, were lightly burdened for no apparent reason, while the Northwest, Northeast and North Midlands were held in reserve for war with the Scots. And when that war came a few months later, they were indeed called to reinforce the borders. Those organising military effort were likewise drawn together into what they sometimes called the defence of the realm, as borough officers and church wardens recorded with increasing frequency where their soldiers were sent. Just as civil war in the 15th century had raised southern fears of pillaging northerners, so local account books sometimes showed the divisive effects of civil conflict. In 1483, when the Kentish men rose and the northern men came to defend the king. In 1536, when the insurrection was in Lincolnshire, or soldiers went against the northern men. In contrast, as Morrison repeatedly stressed, the needs of national defence rose above the divisions evident in the revolts of 1536-7. For these purposes, soldiers went to Portsmouth or Berwick, or to Boulogne, Saint-Quentin or Le Havre, to Gelders, Scotland or Ireland. Sometimes the significance and immediacy were palpable. Faversham, 
sent its men to Dover in 1558, at what time Calais was besieged, spending two pounds, eight shillings and eightpence on meat and drink for the town's men lying long at Dover at the besiege of Calais. Those who stayed at home were expected to pray for the king's success. The muster commissioners for Herefordshire in 1539 identified those fit to fight, those unfit but possessing arms and armour, and other poor subjects not meet for the war and being of no ability to have habiliments of war, whom they left out of the muster book, referring them to pray to almighty God for your most royal estate long time prosperously and joyously to endure. Local authorities organised such prayers to the great God of battles. At London in 1523, on the anniversary of Agincourt, the bishop, judges, mayor and aldermen led a general procession to pray for the army in the north where a battle with the Scots was imminent. Communities were also told to celebrate victories to show that the King's Highness and his people be glad and joyous. Bonfires, bell ringing and beer in the streets combined to make what contemporaries called a triumph. Battle after battle, conquest after conquest was greeted in this way. Berwick, Terouanne, Tournai, Flodden, Pavia, Edinburgh, Boulogne, Pinky, Saint-Quentin. The external successes, Boulogne above all, attracted much more fuss than the defeat of rebels. They also roused more excitement than peace treaties, the opposite of the situation in the Netherlands, where peace, with its renewal of trade and removal of ravaging armies, caused hearty festivity. The only rivals for attention in England were the births of princes that promised a secure succession and with it domestic peace. Prince Edward's birth was the only celebration of Henry's reign that outshone the bonfires and bells for Boulogne. The effects of Henry's wars extended beyond the English. They enabled the Welsh to serve the crown while celebrating their Welshness, sometimes in rivalry with their neighbours. Tudor Aled thought Sir Rhysap Thomas's victories evoked the envy of England, and Louis Daron praised Huap Shonat Madoch for capturing Teruan when the English could not while Ellis Griffith's Welshness coursed through his career from his outrage at the suggestion that it was the Welsh who mutinied on the campaign of 1523 to his outrage at the suggestion that it was a Welsh soldier who tried to betray Boulogne in 1545. The Welsh in Ireland defined themselves by difference from the Irish. Louis Morganoch praised Cerise Monsell for his victories over the wild Irish and Sean Salbury of Denby for the ruthless way he killed them. For the Irish, the effects were more ambivalent. Gaelic lords, tempted by the offer of assimilation in Henry's Irish kingdom, might show their loyalty by service in Scotland or France, while peasants in the Pale were berated for their degeneracy as they gave up archery. And old English lords and gentry were alienated from the crown and its new English agents by the conversion of their obligation to military service into a heavy and unparliamentary tax, the cess. In England, identities were reinforced by the way war made people differentiate themselves from the foreigners in their midst, as orders went out to arrest enemy aliens and confiscate their goods on the outbreak of war. In 1484 and 1496, Scots were arrested at London and Hereford, and in 1513, official returns of Scots and Frenchmen were compiled by local authorities and their goods sold for the king. In 1522, the aldermen of London searched their wards for Frenchmen. 
and then sat with royal councillors to assess their goods. The bailiff of Shrewsbury travelled to Westminster to certify the number of Frenchmen in the town. And at Dover, 17 Scots were listed with their places of birth, marital and employment status, children and wealth. John Watson, shoemaker, was worth eight pounds, eight shillings and five pence halfpenny. In 1542, Norwich carefully listed its 17 Frenchmen, including two embroiderers who worked for Sir Richard Southall and Sir Thomas Lestrange and took sureties for their good behaviour. From York to Hull to Norwich to Oxford to Dover, those born near the borders or at Calais rushed in wartime to prove they were not Scots or French, producing certificates from their local clergy or other reputable witnesses. Coastal towns, worried about fifth columnists, resorted to making all Frenchmen wear a white cross on their left arm, or expelled them entirely. In the nervous wake of the fall of Calais, even those Frenchmen who had denizen status were investigated, for fear they might compass, imagine, and procure sundry mischiefs and damage to be done by the French nation to this realm. York's two smiths, a crossbow maker and a surgeon, were all well behaved, but an Oxford bookbinder had to find sureties that he was not a spy. In time, religious polarities complicated national enmities, and in 1562, refugee Frenchmen in the Kent ports were encouraged to move inland rather than thrown into jail. Nonetheless, those who concealed their identity might be punished. A servant at London whipped in 1563 for not admitting he was French. At musters, foreigners were pointed out and noted down. In 1522, for instance, many Bretons in Cornwall and Galleon Hoon, the Dutch glass painter at Eton. Tensions might escalate when troops were being recruited. At London, a Scottish member of the Draper's Company refused to be sent to the defence of Portsmouth in 1545. And in 1560, one pewterer had to be fined for telling another that he played the Scots part and had a Scots heart. The goldsmiths imprisoned a Frenchman who refused to contribute in cash to their preparations to save Calais, but offered a pound of candles instead, a suggestion they evidently regarded as a piece of Gallic sarcasm. Foreign mercenary soldiers were by no means as common a sight in England as in most continental countries, but they did appear. Germans and Swiss under Henry VII, Germans at Portsmouth and on the Isle of Wight in 1512 to 13, and the garrison warfare of the 1540s around Boulogne, Calais, and the English strongholds in Scotland drew in many more. Nicander Nucius accompanied a Greek captain to the north in 1545-6 and found Englishmen generally well disposed to foreigners. Matters were tenser at Calais, where Ellis Griffith denounced the overpaid, overfed, depraved, brutish soldiers from all nations under the sun who served alongside him. The most prolonged exposure of the English to foreign soldiers was during the Risings of 1549, and the results were ugly. The Western rebels reportedly abhorred those sent against them and slew many, while Kett's rebels captured an Italian captain, rejected ransom offers, stripped him of his splendid clothes and armour, and hanged him. Looking back on the Risings, one Marian observer claimed that the mercenaries fled the fighting and went off to plunder, until afterwards, most of them were killed by the peasants, an account that finds unusual confirmation in a coroner's report showing a murderous assault at Huntingdon by a Landsknecht, perhaps from the garrisons in Scotland or the army that had beaten Kett's rebels three weeks earlier, who seems to have been lynched. On campaign abroad too, there could be trouble. 
English and German troops fell out at Dordrecht in 1481, outside Terouanne in 1513, and at Saint-Quentin in 1557. Conversely, when Englishmen in French and Imperial pay encountered one another in the 1550s, there are signs that they tried to avoid fighting. One further sign of English martial identity was devotion to St. George. His was a royal cult, focused at Windsor and in the Order of the Garter, but others joined in. When Henry VII visited Cambridge in 1506, the parishioners of Holy Trinity pounced on him and his lords on St. George's Day and extracted contributions of £1, 15 shillings and fourpence towards a statue of St. George for their church, more than a quarter of the total cost. St. George presided over all Englishmen at war. York, wishing Richard, Duke of Gloucester in 1482, God and St. George to be your good guide against the Scots. Sir Thomas Everingham, hoping to God, Our Lady and St. George that a relative would do good service in the defence of Flanders in 1479. His cult was an inevitable, though rather belated, victim of the Reformation. St. George's Day declared not to be a holiday by a statute of 1552. Already in 1550, the firebrand bishop John Hooper denounced the way in which, in time past, the Englishman used to call upon St. George, the Frenchman upon Saint-Denis, the Scot upon St. Andrew, making them strange gods. But, he continued, praised be the mercy of God, I hear say and believe it, that Englishman hath resigned St. George's usurped title to the living God, the God of battle. If so, it may have contributed further to the blending of national war and holy war consummated under Elizabeth. Warfare cultivated loyalty to the crown as it displayed royal magnificence. We think first of palaces, pageantry and progresses when we consider how the Tudors showed their subjects the greatness that commanded obedience. But the king at war was a splendid sight. Henry VII in 1492 and Henry VIII in 1513 wore jewel-encrusted helmets on campaign. Henry VII left London with honourable triumph and crossed to France with a gilded crown at the masthead of his flagship. And when Henry VIII expected battle in 1513, he ordered all his rich tents put up, topped by royal heraldic beasts. Something of this grandeur was present even when the monarch was not. For his campaign in Gelderland in 1511, Sir Edward Poynings was equipped with a silken standard of the Cross of St. George, 17 feet long, and 12 eight-foot pennons of the same design. For those at sea or in port, the navy was also an impressive sight. Great ships painted with the royal arms and flying flags of St. George, and their names reinforced their association with royal power and dynastic identity. Under Henry VII, they were the regent and the sovereign. Under Henry VIII, the Henry Grassadieu, the Mary Imperial, the Falcon in the Fetterlock, Portcullis and Peter Pomegranate, in honour of the Yorkist, Beaufort and Aragonese badges. Under Edward and Mary, the Double Rose and the Philip and Mary. And under Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Jonas, named to commemorate the Queen's rescue from her enemies as miraculous as that of Jonah from the whale. Fortifications, similarly, were garnished with royal arms, badges, and loyal inscriptions. God save King Henry and God save Prince Edward at St. Moore's Castle, and more elaborate Latin invocations composed by John Leland. Individual soldiers got to play their part in the dynastic pageant 
when their towns, Norwich and Plymouth in 1497, London in 1513, York in 1523, chose to dress them in green and white, the Tudor livery colours. The effects of all this were amplified by the dissemination of texts and images. Hall's Chronicle was relentless in its depiction of the magnificence of Henry's wars. And where English printers were not yet capable of showing the king at war, the more sophisticated entrepreneurs of Antwerp obliged with images which must have been available on the English market given the lively London-Antwerp trade. The idea that Henry's wars were glorious as a manifestation of magnificence as a perpetuation of the Hundred Years' War and as a prophylactic against civil unrest was not unquestioned. Erasmus, his English friends, and some of their Protestant successors combined classical and biblical ideas to argue that war was irrational, ignoble, and unchristian. More had his utopians pity their enemies, for they knew that subjects don't go to war of their own volition, but are thrust into it by the madness of princes. And in his epitaph, Moore spent as many lines on his role in the Peace of Cambrai as on his whole public career up to that point. Some of those who opposed the amicable grant in 1525 thought that rather than spend on war, Henry would have done better to imitate his father, which lacked no riches or wisdom to win the Kingdom of France if he had thought it expedient. But such unequivocal opinions seem always to have been in a minority. And while mid-Tudor policymakers adopted some of the Erasmian analysis of war and peace, they also made much more pragmatic calculations about national interests and capacities. Henry's wars marked his England. They killed more people and built more buildings than his Reformation, and filled more space in contemporary historical writing. And they did as much as the Reformation to shape the reigns of his successors. Under those successors, three very different intellectuals William Thomas, Edward's clerk to the Privy Council, executed by Mary, the anonymous author of the Machiavellian treatise on the government of England, presented to Philip II, and Sir Thomas Chaloner, a diplomat for Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, expressed overlapping views on the late King's wars. For Thomas, Henry's wars had aimed to defend the peaceable English in Ireland against the barbarous Irish, and having done so, to bring the Irish by conciliation to the state of civil, reasonable, patient, humble, and well-governed Christians. To turn the ancient contention between English and Scots to one perpetual united people and peace by the marriage of Edward to Mary and to claim reasonable compensation by the conquest first of Terouanne and Tournay, then of Boulogne, for the tribute owed by French kings to the English in right of their claim to the throne of France. Chaloner agreed that Henry's wars were not fought for greedy ambition, but thought he aimed to keep the balance between his neighbours, the Habsburgs and Valois, each driven by a destructive lust for empire, to reprove the French for their barbarous alliance with the Ottomans, and the Scots for their treaty breaking, and to defend his subjects against the great danger of invasion, thus preserving the homeland for the people and the people for the homeland. He came close to modern analysts of state formation in arguing that Henry was compelled to levy taxes greater than those of his predecessors because the power of neighboring kings had grown exceedingly. The Machiavellian treatise took for granted that rulers made war but argued that Henry had quickly remedied the weakness of the kingdom, which he found without trained soldiers and without an experienced commander. 
When it came to Henry's achievements, all three authors concurred. Though capturing Boulogne and burning Edinburgh were impressive, Henry's Annus Mirabilis was 1513, as he achieved glorious victory, as much by the conquest of Terouanne and Tournai and the ignominious flight of the French, as by the rout of the Scots. They all caught, too, the ambiguity of Henry's military machine. His fortress building was picked out by Thomas and by Chaloner, who also stressed his collection of cannon, his encouragement of the breeding of war horses, and his construction of a handsome and mighty fleet of ships built much larger than others by new methods. Yet the Machiavellian treatise stressed that while in 1513 he had armed tens of thousands of his subjects, when the war was over, they returned to cultivating the land and to their usual activities without tumult or the thought of it, which came from the prudence of the prince, who knew how to train them and make use of them in war, and how to use his authority to order them back to their trades in peacetime. Chaloner, too, noted this ability to mobilize and demobilize, and argued that Henry's subjects accepted this, confident that he undertook nothing in vain. It was precisely this dependence of Henry's war-making on subjects who were at best part-time soldiers, indeed part-time taxpayers, that tied his wars so closely into his people's conceptions of national history and national identity. They gave war a place in the memories of families, and not just the gentry, the Clerveau of Croft in Yorkshire, who lost John Clerveau in the King's service at the Scottish Field, or the Clears of Ormsby in Norfolk, who lost Thomas Clear after service at Montreuil, his nephew Robert at Pinky, and his brother Sir John in a raid on the Orkneys in 1557. John Astley of Coventry left two pounds in 1564 to the son of his brother, who had been killed at Saint-Quentin seven years earlier. Decades later, Archbishop Sancroft learnt the story of his grandfather's great-uncle, drowned on the way to Boulogne in 1544 when the rolling guns in his ship overturned it. It's often said that generals fight the last war, but Henry took the army of the last war, the Wars of the Roses, used it to refight the war before that, the Hundred Years' War, and left his son to refight the war before that, Edward I's failed conquest of Scotland. Henry's wars left his subjects both traumatized and inspired. There was perhaps more than he intended in W.G. Hoskins' characterization of Henry as the Stalin of Tudor England. A comparison closer to Henry in time might be with Charles XII of Sweden, that charismatic psychopath in the words of A.F. Upton, who led a series of citizen armies to glory and destruction in the quest for a national destiny of conquest and empire charted by the careers of Gustavus Adolphus and Charles X. Henry's heavy taxation and debasement of the coinage warped the mid-Tudor economy. His assault on France, ambitions in Ireland, and bid to control Scotland overstretched mid-Tudor strategy, and his naval expansion gave his successors both a tool for maritime ambition and a lump in the royal budget. He left to serve his children, a generation of captains on land who looked back plaintively to his reign as a time when chivalry, soldiers, and manhood were so much esteemed that he was thought happy and most valiant that sought credit by the exercises of arms, and a generation of captains at sea accustomed to help themselves liberally to the profits of foreign shipping. He left them a body of subjects allergic to painful taxation and recruitment 
and yet admiring of his victories and his fortifications, a nation prone to congratulate Elizabeth on her measures of rearmament while grudging her the resources to pursue them. The time has come to draw our reflections to a close. Having spent six weeks thinking about Henry's subjects at war, we must of course remind ourselves that war was not the only thing that they thought about. Work and play, eating and drinking, love and marriage and children, sickness and health, heaven and hell, loomed larger for many of them much of the time. But in many moments, in many places, war touched and shaped their lives. And if we forget that, then our understanding of their England, their king, and their way of life will not have the depth it deserves. Well, on behalf of the Ford Lectures Committee, I want to thank Stephen Gunn very warmly for his wonderfully coherent, focused and suggestive lectures, where the consummate command of detail never obscured the bigger picture. The busy world of war was illuminated not only by colourful pie charts and pictures and, and um, graphs, but by church wardens parish accounts, by muster rolls, by inventories, by wills, by martial possessions, right down to the business of archery, something of a recurring theme, um, gunpowder, drink, and haircuts for soldiers. We've certainly, as I anticipated in my remarks before the first lecture, we've certainly heard the people talking, often humorously. But the broad sweep has been there too, as this last lecture so brilliantly showed. Changes in ideas of gentility, the evolution of institutions like the Lord Lieutenancy, national and local finances, the importance of experience in Ireland on the continent and Scotland, and the commercial effects of trade on cloth, horses, wine, and money. All of this has been covered over the last six weeks, not forgetting the ultimate themes of mutilation, illness, and death. And finally, today, the institutions of monarchy and nationhood themselves. In his opening lecture, Dr. Gunn promised to explore the neglected world of war in this period and to put it in a different context. He suggested that Henry's wars have been historiographically eclipsed by his reformation of the church but that the impact of armed conflicts may have been equally decisive for community life in town, of, in town and country, for class relations and the economy and psychology of the country at large. Dr. Gunn concluded that first lecture by suggesting that the history of Henrikian warfare needed to be treated with some of the range, richness and subtlety of Reformation historiography. He rapidly added that he couldn't hope to do this in six lectures. I think that's one of the few points where his audiences over the last weeks may cordially disagree with him. 
and I'd like you to show it by applauding him once more. Thank you.